So Psalm 90. We want to be happy, brothers and sisters. We want to live with joy. Everyone wants to be happy. Uh, Blaise Pascal said, even those who commit suicide do so because they want to be happy. Happiness and the desire for happiness is true for everyone. Now, as Christians, we want the joy of the Lord to be our strength. But with, um, we're shaken up in these days. With social distancing, staying six feet apart from each other, the COVID-19 infection spreading, and with some of, some of us fighting fear, we are shaken up. Others of us are shaken up not by fear of a pandemic, but fear of financial loss. Other, others of us are fearful um, just by the, or maybe not fearful, but fighting inconvenience and being annoyed with having to take all of these drastic measures for our society in these days. Now, so there, there's much to be sad about in our day. There's much to be deflated by or discouraged by. We have uh, run into some of our church family throughout this week, and we greet them through a screen, and they have to stay six feet or more away from us, and that's extremely frustrating in our day. So there's much to be discouraged about. And so the question I want us to ask this morning is, can we find joy and happiness in our day, in this season? If this goes on for the next six weeks or 10 weeks, we're not meeting at least right now until April 26th, unless things change. Uh, it could be longer, it could be shorter, but in these days of self-quarantining and social distancing and discouragement and upheaval and the economy um, sinking, can we find joy and happiness today in this world, in this broken world? The good news from Psalm 90 is that we don't have to be overwhelmed by death. We don't have to be overwhelmed by sickness. And we don't have to be overwhelmed by fear or instability. So here's the main goal from Psalm 90. It's a prayer. It's, it says here, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So the main goal is a prayer. Ask God. Ask God. Pray to God. Ask God so that you, so that you receive wisdom and joy for life in this broken world. Pray to God so that you receive joy and wisdom in this broken world. That's the, that's the main goal of the, of the passage. Pray to God, ask God, petition God, so that you may live with his joy and wisdom in this broken world today, in the midst of this coronavirus um, outbreak and, um, and the challenges that it poses for all of us. So how? How do we pray? How should we pray? How should we ask God so that we live with his joy and wisdom in this day, in this broken world. There are three ways or three strategies here, three helps for praying, okay? The first one is you pray or ask God by confessing God's eternality. Ask God or pray to God by confessing his eternality. That's verses one and two. Secondly, ask God, petition God, pray to God by fearing God's anger. By fearing God's anger, that's verses three through 11. And then thirdly, we pray and petition God for wisdom and joy in this broken world by receiving God's love. By receiving God's love, okay? So by confessing God's eternality, verses one and two, we pray by fearing God's anger, verses three through 11, and we pray by receiving God's love, verses 12 through 17. Let's look at these one at a time. So look at verse one with me. So here it is, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. You guys might remember who Moses is. He was living around 1440 BC, the Exodus, somewhere around there. He led the people of God, the nation of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, through the 10 plagues, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and toward the promised land. And he led them for 40 years there 
in the wilderness. So this is Moses. And notice he starts his prayer with confessing God's eternality. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. When we pray, it's right to praise God for who he is and tell God who he is. When we say who God is, when we confess God's eternality, God's love, the attributes of who God is and what he's like, when we say those in our prayers, it changes us. It makes us love God more and know God more. So confess God, who God is in your prayer. And specifically here, there are three things about God that you want to uh, confess about him. Number one, look at verse one here. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. The word Lord there is not capital L-O-R-D. So it's not speaking of Yahweh, the name of God. When it says Lord here, it's talking about the sovereign, the ruler, the one who's in control of the universe. It's not God's personal name. Psalm 135 verse six says, the Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. God does what he wants. God is Lord, he's in control. Our lives seem out of control. Our, our lives seem unstable. Things seem to be in flux all around us. And in heaven, on the throne of God, in heaven, there is perfect calm. There's perfect peace. God is not rattled. God is not flustered. God is ruling and everything is going according to his plan. Daniel 4, 34 and 35 says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does whatever he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does what he wants, he's Lord. Also in Psalm 90, it says, verse one, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. You have been our refuge. If you look at the footnote here in your CSB, it says dwelling place. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in every generation. And I think that's a better translation. Dwelling place, habitation, uh, residence. God, you are our home. You're our dwelling place. Remember, when Moses took them out of Egypt, he was bringing them home to the promised land, but they never got there during Moses' time. Everyone who's 20 years and older were exiled, not exiled. They were sentenced to die wandering in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Where was their home? They dwelling place. Well, Moses says, God, you, Lord, you have been our home, our home. You have been our dwelling place. You are our home in every generation. God is our refuge and strength. Psalm 89, 38 through 40, speaking now... Uh, Psalm 90 is the beginning of, beginning of book four in the Psalms. And it's speaking of, of, of Psalm three, or book three is about the exile. That's from Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. It's uh, reflecting exile. And Psalm 90 and following talks about the hope that God is king. And there is hope that God will restore his kingdom. And there will be a way out of exile. And if you look at the Psalm right before, if you have your Bible, just go back to Psalm 89 Verses 38 and 40, it says this, speaking of the Messiah, the son of David, but you have spurned and rejected him. You have become enraged with your anointed, that's your Messiah. You have repudiated the covenant with your servant. You have completely dishonored his crown. You have broken down his walls. You have reduced his fortified cities to ruins. They were in exile. Moses was wandering in the wilderness. The people who are reading Psalm 90 are in exile and God is their hope. God is their home. Look at Psalm 91 verse 9. This was my 
One of my takeaways from last week's sermon, Psalm 91 verse 9, it says, um, Because you have made Yahweh my refuge to the Most High, your dwelling place, no harm will come to you. I confessed last Sunday in my sermon that God had not been my dwelling place, not completely. I was looking for safety and security in the health of my family and, and not in God as my ultimate dwelling place in life or in death. And in, a, in this Psalm here in Psalm 90, we get the same idea that God is our refuge. He's our dwelling place. And then look at verse two, a third thing here about God that we confess. And this is the point, confessing God's eternality. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Before God created the world, before God created the mountains, which was on day uh, day three, I believe. Oh, wait, no. Day four. Nope. Day five. Day five of the creation, God created land, the mountains. But before day five, God was God. And before God gave birth to the earth and the world, before creation, God was God. How long has God been God? How long? From when? Look at verse two. From when? From eternity to eternity, you are God. So how long has God been God? Forever. God has always been God. God has never developed. God is never becoming. God is who he is. I am that I am. God is the eternal one with no beginning and no end. Before the universe was created, for eternity, God has been God. God is God and God will always be God. God has no beginning. He will have no end. God sees all and knows all in all times. God created time. God is not subject to time. God does not relate to time the way we do. God has life in himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Even Jesus, the Son of God, before he was incarnated and named Jesus, as God the Son, was God for all eternity. He has life in himself, it says in John 5, 26. Jesus even said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He existed even before Abraham. So God is eternal. For those who are discouraged and fearful, especially in this COVID-19 crisis, but all of us who are fearful and discouraged, I have good news for you. Our hope in this generation, in 2020, in March 2020, our hope, just like previous generations, and our hope is just like future generations, our hope is God himself. From eternity to eternity, God is God. So we sing songs like, O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be thou our guide while life shall last and our eternal home. God is our dwelling place. God was home for Adam. He was home for Noah. He was home for Abraham. He was home for Moses. He was the dwelling place for David. He was the dwelling place for the exiles, for the prophets. God was the dwelling place for the apostles and for the early church. And the generation right before us, God was a dwelling place. For our generation, God is a dwelling place. Forever and ever, God will be our eternal home. He will be our dwelling place. So we can sing songs like, Because He Lives. One of the verses says, How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy He gives. But greater still the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. 
because I know He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because He lives. So if you're going to confess God's eternality in your prayer, some application for you, Christian, you should meditate on God's eternality. Meditate on God's sovereignty. Confess who God is in your prayers. And in this prayer specifically, confess that God is sovereign, that God is our dwelling place, and that God is eternal. Church family, lift one another's eyes up to God the Most High. You are an arrow pointing to God. Tonight, Calvin is going to be preaching to us, Acts 1-8. We are witnesses testifying about who God is, the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. So point one another to God, especially in these days. If you're not a Christian, non-Christians, listen up here. I have a question for you. What is your hope in these uncertain days? Where do you find hope? Children, and I'm talking to my children who are here in this building. Children, listen up. City, listen up. Turn around, look here. Children, listen. I have bad news and good news. One day, and I know this is a fear for you, this was a fear for me. One day, your parents and your grandparents will be gone. And you'll be the parents. And you'll be the grandparents. I know it's scary. When I was a kid, I was scared of my parents being gone. I'm still scared about my parents being gone. I know it's scary, but you know what? God will be your home. God will be your refuge. Just like he was for your parents. Just like he was for your grandparents. God will be your dwelling place. From eternity to eternity, God is your God. And he will always be there even when your parents can't be. That's scary, right? But let's hope in God. Because God is God. He's our eternal God. All right, so going back to the main goal, ask God, pray to God so that you receive wisdom and joy for your life in this broken world. How do you ask God or how do you pray to God? Pray to God, first of all, by confessing God's eternality. Secondly, pray to God by confessing, or not, I'm sorry, not by confessing, by fearing God's anger, verses three through 11. Pray to God by fearing God's anger. Look at verse three, verses three through six. Well, before you look at verse three, I think the key to this section is verse 11. So look back at your Bibles, at verse 11, it says, Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. What is due to God in verse 11, guys? Here, what is due to God in verse 11? Look at verse 11. What is due to God? What is due him? For someone to answer. What is due God in verse 11? Look at it. Do you guys see it? What would you say, Story? Fear. fear. That's right. Fear. It says, your wrath matches the fear that is due you. What is due to God? What, what do we owe God? Fear. We should fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fearing God means fearing God's anger. At least in this section, in verses 3 through 11, God's wrath in verse 11, his anger, it, it is the fear that is due God. So as you pray, we should pray with the fear of the Lord, particularly fearing God's anger and wrath. Now let's look at this section, verses 3 through 11. Look at verse 3 with me. You return, Moses continues his prayer, you return mankind to the dust, saying, return, descendants of Adam. So God returns us to dust, to the dust. What is the dust? 
God formed Adam from the dust. He made Adam from the dust. And he will return to the dust. That's part of the curse that God has put. That means you'll die. You'll be buried and you will return to the dust. Now why? Why will, why will God tell us to return to dust? Look at verse 4. For in your sight, a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. Why, does, why, why, do, we die, why, why do we die? Why do we return to dust? Because for God, it's like a thousand, a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by like a few hours of the night. How, how long? I mean, I slept for maybe four or five, four hours last night. That passed by really quick. I wish I could have had more sleep. Four hours of sleep last night. It passed by so quickly. That's how our lives are. Why do we return to dust? Because time flies. Time passes on and we die. Look at verse 5. You end their lives. So God, Moses praying to God, God, you end their lives. They sleep. So God ends our lives. And, and he gives us an illustration here. What are we like? They are like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows, but by evening what happens? The grass what? It withers and dries up. That's right. It withers and dries up. Humans are like withering grass. Grass comes, it grows, it fades, and that's what our lives are like, like fading grass. Now why does God end our life? God ends man's life, God ends woman's lives, he ends human lives, why? Verses seven through 11 give us the answer. Now let's look at verse seven. Why does God end our lives? For, for we are consumed by your anger, we are terrified by your wrath. So why does God end our lives? Because God has what? Anger and what? Yeah. Anger and wrath. God has anger and wrath. Now some people might say, why is God unfair? Look at our lives. I mean, what have I done? Why is God picking on us? What have I done that deserves this kind of suffering and this kind of pain and this kind of sorrow? Or we might even say as, as a society, as a community, what have we done as Angelinos in Los Angeles or as Americans in America or as global citizens? What have we done, God, that we would deserve to have our lives end? That we would deserve to have a, a pandemic spreading and sweeping across our world? What have we done? Why, how is this fair, God? Maybe we ask questions like that. What did we do to deserve this? Now for the unbeliever who doesn't see God's holiness as great, God seems unfair. And it seems like God is obligated. God, you owe us an answer. We have done nothing to deserve this. You must answer us. So why does God end our lives? Some people might say because God's unfair. Or because God doesn't exist. If you're not a Christian, maybe that's what you think. Well... God gives us an answer in verse 8. Why, why is God angry and why does God have wrath? Look at verse 8. You have set our what? Our iniquities before you and our secret what? Our secret sins in the light of your presence. So what, why is God angry? Because of our iniquities. God has set our iniquities, our sins, our transgressions, our rebellion against God. God has set that before him and that's why he's angry with us. That's why he was angry with Moses and Moses' people, the Israelites. So what, what sins does Moses have in mind? I just alluded to it. I, I think it's God exposes our sin. You know, we're all blind to our sin to some degree. We don't feel the depth of our sin. We don't see all of our sin. And God reveals it and exposes us by convicting us, by trials and by different things to push the sin out of us. 
and to show us and to show the world, and he will on judgment day, that we are indeed sinful and God is indeed righteous in his judgments. But here it says that God has set our iniquities before him and our secret sins in the light of his presence. God sees it all. He sees all of your sins. You can't hide from him. But what sins does, God, does Moses have in mind here? I'm thinking perhaps for the Israelites, if you go back to Numbers, um, I think it's Numbers 12 through 14. Let me just double check here. Turning here in my Bible. Numbers 14. Numbers 12 through 14, they scout the land of Canaan to see the, our, Numbers 13 and 14. They go to Canaan and they send 12 spies to scout out the land so that they can take the land that God has promised he would give the Israelites over against the Canaanites. They come back and they're scared. They doubt God. So what is the sin in their hearts? They have pride and idolatry. They want to go back to Egypt where it's safe and comfortable and they don't need to trust God for the unknown. That's what they want. So deep down, what is their sin? Their sin is doubt, doubting God's promises, doubting God's goodness, doubting God's love, doubting God's word, doubting God's works of the 10 plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea where he splits the Red Sea open, doubting the fact that God gave them manna in the wilderness and led them by a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of cloud by night. They see all of this. They see the Mount Sinai with earthquakes and lightning and fire and, and they see all of that and they still reject God. They still doubt God. They still have pride and they still worship their comfort of, of Egypt in slavery. That's their sin. Their unbelief, it says, according to Hebrews 3 and 4. Their idolatry of worshiping a, a false god. They doubted God's goodness and power to give them the land of Canaan. What was Moses' sin? If you remember Moses, in uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 50, God tells Moses why he will not go to the promised land. It says, Then you, Moses, will die on the mountain that you go up, and you will be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Moses was angry. Moses was frustrated with his people who were complaining. And so what does Moses do? When they're asking for water, God wanted Moses to speak to the rock. Instead, Moses takes his staff and he says, You guys want water? And then he just smacks the rock and then water gushes out and then he lets the people drink. And he, he kind of shows off in his anger towards, towards the Israelites. And in that, God says that, um, that Moses did not take God's holiness seriously. He did not take Moses's, God, Moses did not take God's holiness seriously. And that was his sin. One application for us is take God seriously. Take God's holiness seriously. Take your sin seriously. Unlike Moses when he struck the rock. So God, Moses is saying, God, you, you've seen our sins. You're ang God was angry with Moses. God was angry with the Israelites. That's why they're wandering in the wilderness because they doubted God's goodness. God sentenced them all 20 years and older to die in the wilderness for 40 years. There were 600,000 men who set out from from um, Egypt, if you add just 600,000 more women, if you just made it that, 1.2 million, over 20, who are going to die over the next 40 years. That is a crisis. And there would be plagues and other reason, ways that God would kill them. But God did that in his anger and in his wrath because of their sin. God kept his people in that generation out of the promised land. They would never make it home to the promised land. God would have to be their home. Look at verses 9 and 10. Here's what it's like in, under God's anger and wrath. For all our days, this is what, what it was like wandering in the wilderness, what it might be like for us. For all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. <sighs> That's life. 
Our lives last 70 years, or, or if we are strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, these years, they pass quickly and we fly away. We waste our lives away, it goes by quickly. 70 years, maybe 80 years, maybe 30 years like Jesus, 30 plus years. Our lives are groaning, with our, this world is groaning. It says in Romans 8, we ourselves are groaning, longing for resurrection, but we die. We get old and we die. Ecclesiastes has the same realism. I remember when I preached an overview of Ecclesiastes, you guys should probably look up that sermon in these days, but one, one of the members came up to me, member at the time came up to me and said, PJ, why is the sermon so sad? It was like 85% sadness and then like 15% hope at the very end of my message. I was like, well, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes, it's giving a real picture of life in this world. There are no stable treasures in this world, whether it's wealth or health or strength or knowledge or um, pleasure or riches, whatever you aim at, there is no stable pleasure in this world. All is vanity, all is empty, all is fleeting. And because of that, it is sad. We groan in this life. And why are we groaning in this life? This is all due to God's anger, God's wrath. That's what verse 11 says, God's anger and God's wrath. And why does God have anger and wrath? Why does God sentence us to death? Because the penalty of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. It is right and fair and righteous of God to give us this consequence for sin, namely death. Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that day they ate of it, they would certainly what? Die. And they did die. They would return to dust. And so will we because of sin. Adam sinned, we sinned in Adam as our federal head and um, under his headship, and we sin in our own lives as soon as we're capable, and so because of that, we deserve death. For Moses, this death was in the wilderness, but it was not an eternal damnation, if you look at Hebrews 3 and 4. So I have a question here. Does God still get angry with his saved people? If Christ died for sinners, do the saved, those who are saved in Christ, does God still get angry with them? Yes or no? What do you guys think? Yes? Yeah, you guys are right. The answer is yes. Psalm 30, verse 5. Look at Psalm 30, verse 5. I like Psalm 30, verse 5. Psalm 30, verse 5. It says this. For his anger lasts only for what? You guys see it? For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. But is there anger? Yes. yes. How long does the anger last? Okay. Only a moment. So does God get angry with his people? Yes. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Quoting Psalm 4 or Psalm 5, be angry and do not sin. Does God get angry without sinning? Yes, God has righteous anger and God has timed anger. God's anger never goes longer than it should go. God's anger is always perfectly right and fitting and righteous to the situation and to the sin and to the moment. So yes, we do have God angry with us even as Christians from time to time. Is there condemnation for God's people though? Is there condemnation? Is there damnation for God's people, yes or no? No. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for God's people. 
in Christ Jesus because God's people are in Christ Jesus. So here, now Psalm 90 does not make this distinction, but if we're going to read our Bibles well and apply it accurately, we need to make this distinction. Okay? Psalm, in Psalm 90, um, it does not clarify and distinguish God's anger and wrath. There are two kinds of anger and wrath, and Psalm 90 kind of overlaps them. Okay? There is God's long and damning anger, and there is God's short and disciplinary anger. God's long and damning anger and God's short and disciplinary anger. Now, some get both, God's short and disciplinary anger and God's long and damning anger. But for Christians, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But we still experience God's short, only for a moment, God's short and disciplinary anger. Now, is there condemnation? Is there long and damning anger? Is there eternal and final wrath for those who are not God's people? Yes or no? Yes. For those who are not God's people, God's wrath and God's judgment will be on them. Actually, it is already on them. John 3, John 3, 36 says this. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And that's not just the short, temporary wrath, the short, disciplinary anger and wrath, but the long and damning anger and wrath. So some of you might say, if you're not Christian, you know, this is why I could never become a Christian. Christianity seems to be built on this concept of anger and wrath, and God is so judgmental. He's such a judgmental deity. He kills people in judgment. I mean, that's what it says in this text. You guys are admitting it, Christians. If you believe this text, you're saying God kills people in judgment, in anger, in wrath. How can, how can you believe in Christianity? You believe in a God who's angry and kills people? I mean, think about the cross. You Christians say that the cross is when Jesus dies and, and God has to kill Jesus on the cross or Jesus has to die on the cross just for God to forgive us. What kind of God needs to have somebody die, namely his own son, according to you guys, just so he can forgive us? Why can't God just forgive us? I mean, can't God just sweep it under the rug and let bygones be bygones? I mean, I have five kids. They sin against me and I get over it really quickly. I don't have to kill anybody. Christians are too extreme. This is why Christianity doesn't make sense. If you're not a Christian and you're thinking along those lines, let me give you a two-part response that has been uh, taught by our brother and pastor, one of the former pastors in New York, uh, Tim Keller. On the cross, Tim Keller writes, God does not demand our blood but offers his own. So all forgiveness, so two things here. All forgiveness of any deep wrong or injustice entails suffering on the forgiver's part. If someone truly wrongs you, in our deep sense of justice, we can't just shrug it off. We sense there's a debt that needs to be paid. So if someone um, violates one of your family members or murders one of your family members, you can't just be like, oh, I'll just get over it and I'll just forgive. No, you either need to make the perpetrator pay for their own debt um, so, so that the, um, the debt that you feel, so there needs to be vengeance or justice, or you can forgive and not exact justice, but then that's difficult because you have to observe, absorb the pain yourself and the cost yourself without, um, without getting a hard heart. So for example, if, if I have an iPhone and um, you borrow it and then you, you take it outside to make a phone call and then you break it accidentally, and if an iPhone's worth, I don't know, 800 or $900, if I say I forgive you, I can't just shrug it off and just 
sweep the iPhone under a rug or the iPhone will just magically appear after I forgive. If I forgive your debt for breaking the iPhone, then I have to absorb the $900 cost, either by not buying another phone and just having no phone or buying another phone. But either way, when you break something, there's a cost. And you can't just say, well, let's just sweep it under the rug and pretend it never happened. Let's just forgive. Well, you can forgive, but it's not just forgiving. There's a cost. And so someone has to absorb and pay for it, either the one who broke it, the perpetrator, or the one who's going to forgive. And then secondly, um, if we can't forgive without suffering, if we can't forgive without absorbing a cost because of a sense of justice and wrong done, it's not surprising that God can't forgive without suffering. God can't forgive us without suffering, but God comes in the person of Jesus Christ and he absorbs our suffering. He absorbs our justice and our debt on the cross. So if you're not a Christian, let me just encourage you to think that it makes you can't have true love without true anger. Anger is the necessary response to those we love being violated and being given a sense of injustice. All right, so um, here we are in Los Angeles. COVID-19 in LA is spreading as of yesterday. At noon, there were 351 confirmed cases of COVID-19 by testing, and there's way more of people who have it who have not been tested. Tests have not been available um, as much as, as we need it. But there have been 351 confirmed cases in LA and four deaths. Now, worldwide, there are 308,000 308, worldwide with 13,071 deaths as of last night. That's, four point, that's a 4.2% fatality rate among confirmed cases worldwide. In the US, the death rate is 10 times the seasonal flu. That's crazy. That's scary. That's a real threat to us. But there's a pandemic that has led to billions of deaths and it's a 100% fatality rate. It has a 100% fatality rate. What is that? It's not COVID-19. What is the sickness and the disease that kills everyone? The wages of sin is death. Sin. There's sin all over the world. Sinners are guilty before God, and they will all die because of sin. Now, the COVID-19 may wake us up to the reality that we truly face death, but before COVID-19 and after COVID-19, guess what? You're still facing death. God is just allowing, one of the reasons God is allowing this um, infection to take place is for us to face death and to face it squarely and to deal with the reality that's before us. So the psalmist asks in verse 13, Lord, how long? How long are we going to face death? How long? The answer is until, for Moses, how long would, would we face death? When, will, when would death be defeated? When would death be overthrown? How long would Moses have to wait? He'd have to wait until who came? until Jesus Christ came. So if you're not a Christian, or even if you are a Christian, you need to know the main message of Christianity. God created you, he created me. We're made in his image to enjoy him. But we have rebelled and sinned against God. And because we've sinned against God, we deserve death and damnation. But God sent his son Jesus into this world to live the life we should have lived. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He took the punishment, he took the pain, he took the judgment, he took the death. He died for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day. And when he rose from the dead on the third day, when God raised him from the dead, he defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He defeated death. 
And so now everyone who repents from their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ can have life. We don't have a cure for the coronavirus, the COVID-19 infection today, but we do have a cure for sin. There is healing for sin. There is a way to escape the final death. It's by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, Lord, and treasure and turning from your sins. So do that today. If you're listening, repent from your sins. Children, repent from your sins. A non-Christian friend, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Call on him to save you and he will save you. So here we're learning from Psalm 90 to pray. Pray to God so that we receive wisdom and joy in this broken world. And we pray by, by confessing who God is. We pray also by fearing God's anger. So we, by, we confess God's eternality. We, we fear God's anger. And lastly, we receive God's love. Verses 12 through 17. Pray to God for joy and wisdom in this broken world by receiving God's love. Look at verse 12. Here's the first prayer request. And I have uh, in this passage, you have one, two, three, four, let me see, five, five prayer requests, okay? Five prayer requests, five things to pray in receiving God's love. If we're dying and God's angry with us, how can we receive God's love? Here are five things to pray for in receiving God's love. Okay, verse 12 is the first one. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. So ask God for wisdom in your hearts. And specifically, that's the effect. But what is he asking God for? Teach us to what? Teach us to number our days. Specifically, make our days count. God, teach us. Teach Bethany Baptist Church. Teach me. Teach my family. Teach my wife. Teach my neighbors. Teach us to make our days count. Don't just count your days, Muhammad Ali says, but make your days count. John Wooden has this phrase that has been, uh, that my wife and I are fond of. He says, make each day your masterpiece. Make each day your masterpiece. What does he mean by that? He says, try your hardest to improve this very day. Make each day your masterpiece. You have, and he says, quote, you have to apply yourself each day to become a little better. By applying yourself to the task of becoming a little better each and every day over a period of time, you will become a lot better. Only then will you approach being the best you can be. It begins by trying to make each day count and knowing you can never make up for a lost day. Sincerely try your best to make each day a masterpiece. You can never make up for a lost day. Your life is flying. I know if you're younger, you don't feel like your life is flying. This COVID-19 crisis every day seems long, but it will be short. And your life is short. It's but a vapor. Make your days count. Children, pray this for your lives. Pray every day. Pray, God, teach me to number my days. Make, Lord, help me to make this day count. Make this Lord's day count. Make this Sunday count as I hear God's word, as I pray, as I talk to others, as I share the gospel with non-Christians, as I come back at 5 o'clock on the Zoom call to pray with my church family. Lord, help me to make this day count. The elderly, senior citizens, senior saints, I urge you as well, pray this for your lives. Your lives, you know that life is fleeting more than we do, more than I do. And yet, pray this prayer. Make my days count. Moses was at least 80 years old, likely very much older than that. He died at 120. He wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So somewhere in there, he's saying, God, teach us to make our days count. Make our days count. That's one prayer request, okay? Second prayer request is for compassion. Look at verse 13. Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. God, return to us. Turn or return to us. 
Earlier it said in verse 3, God says, mankind, return to dust. You came from dust, to dust you'll return. And now Moses kind of flips it and says, God, you left us in your anger and wrath. Return to us. I know you're angry at, at us, but return to us. Be with us. Commune with us. Have mercy on us. Look on our death and our dying and have compassion for us. Look on our despair and care for us. Look at our anxiety. Look at, look at us, on our, look on us in our anxiety and meet us here. Lord, have compassion on us. Turn your face back to us. Return to us. Draw near to me, Lord. If you're guilty in sin, if you feel like you're stuck in a sin pattern in your life, here's good news. Ask God for help. God is teaching us here. He's telling you, ask me for compassion. Ask me for compassion. Why would God put this in the text except that God wants us to ask him for compassion? Because God wants to be compassionate to you. God wants to help you in your sin. God wants to help you where you're stuck. God wants to help you where you're struggling. God cares. And he tells us to pray for compassion. A third prayer request is in verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. Make us rejoice. So here's the prayer request. For satisfaction, for shouting for joy, for rejoicing, for being glad. That's the prayer request. God, give us gladness. So God, well, we pray for a wisdom to make our days count. We pray for compassion. We pray for gladness. Satisfy us. Give us joy. Give us gladness. Give us rejoicing today. Make us rejoice in our days. Look at verse 14 again. Satisfy us in the morning with what? With your what? With your what? With your faithful love. In verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love. You guys know this. My kids know this from the Jesus Storybook Bible. I have it right here. From the Jesus Storybook Bible, this word steadfast love or covenant love or faithful love, in this book, Sally Lloyd-Jones, I love what she calls it. All these translations have a different. The ESV says steadfast love. The CSB says faithful love. It's God's covenant love. Uh, the covenant love that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here's how Sally Lloyd-Jones says it. It is God's, you guys remember this? God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God, satisfy us. In the morning, with your never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Your covenant love. Satisfy us with your love. And we know that this, is, this covenant love is fulfilled in what covenant? The new covenant. And so we used to do this every Sunday. We will do this soon again once we meet. We will take our cup together. We'll raise it up and we will proclaim what, what Christ has proclaimed. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Christ died to give us a new covenant so that God's um, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love would be ours. God's love is, in, is for us in Christ. And so the prayer here is God, satisfy us, make us glad in your love. So pray for gladness, pray for joy. But if you really pray for this, understand when you pray for joy, do you want joy? Do you guys want gladness? Do you want happiness in these days of COVID-19? Yes, you do, right? But understand this, if you ask God for joy in his covenant love, in him, in Christ, then God will give you joy in him. But it'll be, if you pray for more joy, you're actually praying for more of God. And if you want more of God, then God will give you himself, but he will give you himself on his terms. And that's scary. Because God can give me joy by killing my loved ones. God can give me more of himself in my trials. 
God can give me more of himself in me going through a dark season of my life. God can give me more of him in dying and giving me gain in, in, in um, my life, my, my soul being absent from the body and present with the Lord. If we want joy in God, God will give it to us. But he will give us himself and it will be on his terms. Not God, give me, give me joy in you plus keep my family safe and my high-risk family members safe from the COVID-19 infection. No, if I'm going to pray for joy in God, I'm just going to pray, God, satisfy me with your covenant love. Whatever that means, I trust you. Give me that covenant love. One other way to apply this prayer for satisfaction in God's covenant love is to read your Bible in the morning. If you say, satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love, then go to the Bible in the morning and read about Christ. Read about God's covenant love that God might satisfy you in the morning. Read your Bible every day. During this COVID-19 crisis, wake up 15 minutes earlier, 20 minutes earlier, pick a book of the Bible and read it. And pray, God, satisfy me in the morning with your covenant love. God will satisfy us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, even, even, though, uh, we, even though we have trials that's going to expose our worldliness and our lack of worship, God will still satisfy us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolute, incomparable, eternal weight of glory. And we sing Christ the sure and steady anchor. Listen to this verse. Christ the sure and steady anchor as we face the wave of death. When these trials give way to glory as we draw our final breath. And that's scary with COVID-19, the way it kills with drawing your final breath. We will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure. And I love this line. And the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. The calm will be the better because of the trials God gives you, because of the tears you cry, because of the pain you face, you will have more joy, a heavier weight of God's glory. There is a proportion between our affliction, our momentary affliction, and the eternal weight of glory. Your suffering is not in vain. God will satisfy you. So pray that prayer. A fourth prayer request is in verse 16. A sight of God's glory. A sight of God's glory. Look at verse 16. Let, let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. God, we want to see your works. We want your servant, our ser we your servants want to see you working. We want to see your splendor. We want to see your glory. This is what Moses prayed on Mount Sinai. God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, God, uh, Moses prayed. And God said, I will proclaim my what? My goodness before you. Show me your glory, Lord. I'll proclaim my goodness. So seeing God's glory is seeing God's goodness, the works of his hands. The, the Greek said in John 12, we just want to see Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when we see the glory of God in Jesus, we are changed. So that's the prayer. God, show us your glory. Show us your splendor. Show us your work. Let your work be seen. Did you know this? That um, a mark of a Christian who's growing, a mark of mature blessing and someone who's receiving God's love in their lives is someone who is, now test yourself here. Are you someone who is aware of God's goodness around you? 
Those who are aware of God's goodness around them are those who are seeing God's splendor, God's glory in the face of Christ. If you're a Christian, you know that all goodness God gives you is blood-bought. And so if you're saying, I praise God that I'm able to live stream. I praise God that I have a church family that's out there and that we're still somewhat connecting online. I praise God for healthy family members right now. I thank God for the privilege of preaching God's word. I thank God for temporary health today. Are you aware of God's goodness? Christians, Christians who are mature, Christians who are maturing, Christians who are receiving God's love, one mark of knowing that you're receiving and experiencing God's faithful love is that you're seeing God's splendor. He is letting you see the work of his hands. And one test for that, or one way you know that, is are you giving thanks? It says in, in uh, second, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything give thanks. Only those who see God's goodness in everything give thanks to God, for God, in everything. And if you don't see God's goodness in that thing, you cannot give thanks to God for it. So the prayer here is, Lord, we're blind. We don't sense and feel and see your goodness the way it's right there in front of me in this crisis. So, Father, let your work be seen by your servants. Let your splendor be seen by their children. God, show my kids your glory. That's a prayer for every parent, right? God, let, let, let your splendor be seen by my children and by the children of Bethany Baptist Church. So pray that. And a fifth prayer request is for favor in our work. Look at verse 17. The last prayer request here is for favor in our work. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. There it is again, let me say it. Let the favor, so there's a prayer request. God, let your favor be on us and establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. So he's praying for God's favor in God in our work, in their work. God's favor, God's blessing. You guys know the ironic blessing of Numbers 6, 24 through 26. Um, the Lord bless you and protect you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. That's the prayer request. Lord, let your favor be on us. Let your favor be on us and establish the work of our hands. Shine your face on us. This is a prayer that God, as I preach, as we interact, as we um, go to work, as we do work from home, as we spend these days in self-quarantine and in social distancing, Lord, establish the work of our hands. Let your face shine on us. Keep working in us and through us. Philippians 2.12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we're working out our salvation and we want God to establish the work of our hands. Now, why do we need God to establish our work? Because our work will be forgotten. Our lives will be forgotten. That's what Ecclesiastes says, right? Our lives are like grass that fades away. We'll be forgotten on the earth. Do you know that, do you know the name of your great-grandparents? Or your great-great-grandparents? That's just a few generations up, right? Your great-great-grandparents, what are their names? Most of us don't know the names of our great-great-great-grandparents. They have been forgotten. They've been forgotten by their families, by their descendants. If they're Christians, they've been forgotten by their churches. And guess what? You will be forgotten too, and so will I. We'll be forgotten on earth by our families, by our churches, like sand on the seashore. You know, when Kobe Bryant 
one of my one of my favorite players, top two favorite players in the NBA, second favorite player. Um, you know, everyone was saying he'll be remembered forever, and I thought immediately. I mean, I, I'm so sad for his death, but no, he won't. Me and my daughter, we were on the beach. I, I think I told you guys the story before. I would write his name on the sand as the waves were crashing. And I would say, this is how people remember you. Look, so you write his name as deep as you can. You write your name in the sand. And when, when one wave crashes, maybe the second wave, and where's the name? It's gone. You're forgotten. Our work, our lives seem meaningless. Our work seems meaningless. And here in this psalm, God is encouraging us toward meaning in our work. That our work is not meaningless. Uh, he he, he encourages, us, encourages us towards meaningful work in the, seemingless, in the seemingly meaningless wandering in the wilderness. They were wandering in the wilderness. I mean, what seems more meaningless than wandering around from place to place for 40 years in the wilderness? That seems pretty meaningless. I mean, the only meaning is we've got to stay alive until we die so that the, our, our kids can go into the promised land. That seems meaningless, right? I mean, Moses is going to lead them through the wilderness for 40 years under judgment, and then they're all going to die. And not even get in there. That seems meaningless. And so Moses prays, God, give us meaning in our lives. Establish the work of our hands. What's the meaningful work for Christians today? Seek first the what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All of our lives is for the, the work of, of seeking first God's kingdom. We all do everything we do to disciple the nations. Right? That's, that's uh, Matthew 28, 19, 20. That we do everything to disciple every ethnic people group and all of our neighbors for the sake of God's glory among the nations. That's our prayer. That's our lives. That's the work of our hands. Whether you're working from home and earning a living, doing good work to your neighbors in society, you do that to earn a living, to support the mission of God's work, to support society, to support the economy so that, the, so that people can stay alive and, and stay flourishing as we preach the gospel to them, as we gospelize them and disciple them and baptize them and establish churches and spread through established churches throughout the world. That is the work of our hands. Doing good work. Studying hard in school. My kids here, you guys study hard in school. Why? Because that's part of your work, to be a contributing citizen of our society so that the gospel can spread, so that God's kingdom outposts of churches can be built all around the world. Our work may seem meaningless, right? Our work may seem unstable, not established. But our work is not meaningless. Our work is not unstable. Why not? It seems unstable. Our work seems meaningless. It seems mundane from day to day. But no work seemed more meaningless and misunderstood than a Jewish man dying on a cross. When Jesus died on the cross, that seemed meaningless. That seemed unstable, actually. It seemed like everything in the world was falling apart at that point. No work seemed more meaningless and misunderstood than Christ's work on the cross. He saved others. Let him save himself. They mocked him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him. He's so godly. He's so close to God. Let God deliver him from the cross. If God is really on his side. He said, he's the king of the Jews. They plastered on top of his cross, the king of the Jews. And the Jews were saying, don't write the king, the king of the Jews, right? He said he was the king of the Jews. This man thought he was the king of the Jews. What meaningless foolishness. They even said during his life, he does his work, he does his miracles, how? By the power of who? 
Beelzebul. He does, his, he does his work by the power of demons. They even said he has a demon and he's a son of adultery. He's a son of sexual immorality because we don't even know who his father is. Jesus was misunderstood. He was misinterpreted. His life and his work, especially as he's hanging on the cross, it seemed meaningless. Yet, his work was established by God. The work of Christ's hands was established by God. He did save others. He did save himself. Christ had to go through the cross. There was no other way. That was how he saved himself, was by dying. They thought he didn't save himself by dying. He saved himself, he saved himself by dying. They said he trusted in God. Let God deliver him now. He did trust in God. And did God deliver him? God raised him from the dead on the third day and declared him king and lord over all. God did deliver him. Is he the king of the Jews? Or was he just someone who said he was the king of the Jews? Yes, he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of his covenant people, the new Israel. He does his work by, does he, does, does he do his work by demons? No, he does his work by the power of who? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Was he born in sexual immorality? No, he was born of a, of a miraculous conception. By the power of the Holy Spirit on the Virgin Mary, who was a virgin at the time. Was Jesus a son of immorality? No, he is the son of God. Where, Christ, where it seemed most meaningless, a man dying on the cross, the, most, the seemingly most meaningless act is the most meaningful act in the universe. The most unstable work of Jesus dying on the cross, seemingly unstable, is God establishing the work of Christ's hands. And because Christ died for your sins, because Christ rose from the dead, because Christ is Lord over all, because now He lives in His people who have repented from their sins and trusted in Him, your work is not meaningless. Your work is not unstable. In these days of COVID-19, your, your self-quarantine work at home can be and is established by God. It's meaningful. As you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, as you pour out your lives to disciple the neighbors and the nations, God establishes the work of His people's hands because He established Christ's work. And all of our work is blood-bought. So let's pray with Moses and with the rest of our church. God, let your favor be on us. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, pray for God's favor. And trust God to answer you as you pray in the name of Jesus. As you pray for wisdom. As you pray for gladness and joy. As you pray for compassion. As you pray for, um, to see God's glory. As you pray for God's favor in your work. Trust God to answer our prayers in the name of Jesus in his time. Let's keep praying to God. And let's pray this for one another. Let's pray this for our church. May God give all of our church wisdom. May God give every single member joy in him and satisfaction. And may he have compassion on us as a church family. And may we see his work as we share blessings. And may we have established work by God's grace. So ask God so that you receive wisdom for joy in this life, in this broken world. By confessing God's eternality, by fearing God's anger, and by receiving God's love. Very specifically, I want to encourage you to pray verse 12. Teach us to number our days carefully 
so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Kids, I want you to pray this as you do schoolwork every day, except for today, right? The Lord's Day. God, make this Lord's Day count. Make Monday count. Make Tuesday count. Help us to count these days carefully, to make each day our masterpiece, that we might develop a heart of wisdom. So here's my call to you. Pray that God would make each day count. Pray that today would count. And then have, ask God to give you one clear goal for you to pursue with all your might today and every day. Have one clear goal. God, write it down. Write down your goal for the day. And then, and then pursue that goal with all of your might. And ask God to make that count. If you do this, if you don't do this, if you don't pray and ask God to give you a clear goal that you pursue with all your might, if you don't pray that God would have you count your days and make your days count, you will lose your days in these days of social distancing forever. You can't get the days back. You can't get yesterday back. It's gone. You'll lose your days, you'll increase your foolishness, and you'll deplete your joy. But if you pray, God, teach me to number today carefully, then you will redeem the time. You'll develop wisdom in your heart as the Spirit of God fills you. And you will rejoice and be glad that day and all of your days as God establishes the work of your hands. It is a fight from start to finish to be happy in God. It is a fight every single day to be happy in God. May we pray to God and receive His answers as we pray for grace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us to make this Lord's Day count. Show us one clear thing you want us to pursue today with all of our might. And give us the grace, may your favor be on us, to pursue that with all of our might. Bring our church family back together tonight online at 5 o'clock for our Zoom call for our prayer time. May that establish our work. May we edify each other by our presence online by our conversation, by our faces on the screen as we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.